0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. This is just going to be a really short intro. We're just going to go straight into our interview with Alan McLeod that Abby and I did a few days ago about the situation that's currently happening
1: in Cuba. I've been wanting to get you on Media Roots for so long because you're just so awesome at what you do. Uh, all of your media critique, your skills dissecting the media, it's just such a crucial thing. And I've been you know, inspired a lot by your work for quite
2: some time now. Wow, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I've actually been listening to Media Roots for a long, long time. Um, yeah, I, I got interested in Occupy Wall Street. And then there was that all that crazy stuff going on in Oakland. I was trying to find out about what was going there. And then I, yeah, I found you and I found your podcast. So I've been listening to it for like 10 years or something. What? That's crazy. Oh, man. You've been, you've been out there from the
0: beginning. That's awesome.
2: Alex. I don't know when you started. I think you might have already started it, but I, I must have been one of the first people.
0: Yeah, we've been around for about 10 years.
2: Because the exactly. reason that we're called Media
1: Roots Radio, which is weird for like a <laughs> podcast, is because we were actually on shortwave radio back then trying to tap into people's radio, radio networks. Um, but no, it's really great to hear Alan and you've been in the game for a long time. That's very cool.
0: Yeah. You're a prolific writer over at mint press news. Um, you're doing incredibly important work. I mean, and you're covering areas that I think other people are not covering, uh, which is great. And we we will talk about that more towards the end of the podcast because it's a personal interest to me. I mean, obviously I have kind of a bone to pick, but it's also an important topic, faux right populism stuff that you've been covering so we'll 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 definitely get to that at the end of the podcast but um that's not why we brought you on today
1: great okay yeah. yeah i mean so you're a senior staff writer for mint press news everyone please check out alan mcleod we'll link to his twitter in the bio here but just follow his work because just pretty much when you're looking at a typical case study in corporate media propaganda. When it comes to our friends and foes, Alan's really um, on the cutting edge, and you really know how to go through. You got the documents. You know how to. You know how to go through all the data and give us what we need. Um, and it's very, very crucial. I mean, especially at times like the one that we're in now, where these protests erupted in Cuba and. You know, Alan, I've been following your work uh, specifically on this Cuba stuff because it's been so important to really just sort fact from fiction here. I mean, you have the thankless job of scouring through uh, corporate news every day and writing media analysis for Mint Press. Um, And so for the past three weeks or so, I guess two weeks, it seems like longer, Miami-based Cubans have been sounding off about this uprising. But it's really hard to tell, like, what the actual scope is on the ground in Cuba a country of 11 million people. From your research, Alan, um, how big are the protests? How big are the counter demonstrations that support the government?
2: And how has the media been covering them both? Sure. I suppose uh, if you're relying on corporate media like the New York Times or CNN, or really any uh, big media outlet across the world, you're probably thinking uh, these protests are rocking Cuba. They're massive. They're the biggest thing seen in a century or more. I don't know, um, these things are shaking the government to its core, but um, I was very interested to try to gauge how big these protests are. Um, generally with protests, this happens all over the world, people want that shot of the wave of people like going down the street in their thousands, and there just wasn't that with Cuba. And So what I looked for, I was going through the, the uh, video, going through the social media for all of this. And there was really only a couple of shots I could see of any kind of like a major, uh, major demonstration going on. And I just sort of paused the tape and manually counted how many people there were in the picture. And the most I could find was 175, which really suggests that these protests aren't quite as big or important as they've been made out to be in corporate media. A lot of uh, media outlets have said thousands of people are protesting, and that might be true nationwide, but when you actually look at the protests, like in Havana, it seems no more than a few hundred people were there. And that's despite the fact that virtually everybody in the West, from politicians to celebrities to artists and musicians all the way up to Joe Biden himself, have been tweeting and making statements in support of the protests, essentially saying, get out on the streets, we're going to help you change your society for good. And yet, it seems that it really, uh, only a few hundred people in Havana and, you know, sort of uh, the similar numbers in other cities have really come out to protest. I mean, they started in a small place in Western Cuba with a few dozen people out on the streets that maybe went to a few hundred it's difficult to tell what the original protests were about because a lot of people, especially in the early days of these protests when they're not really solidified, have a lot of different gripes. Some people were protesting about a lack of uh, basic food. Some people about, um, about lack of uh, access to certain medications. Um, some people even seem to be uh, criticising the government from a left-wing position as well. So it is a little bit difficult to get a handle on what's going on. But um, yeah, they immediately started um, getting signal boosted online by their uh, family in Miami, their family in the United States, which really turned this into a global thing. Uh, the hashtag SOS Cuba trended on Twitter for more than a day. There were over 120,000 posts on Instagram with the hashtag SOS Cuba, and Twitter itself decided its editorial team decided to put uh, the Cuban protests at the top of its What's Happening sidebar. Which meant every user, oh yeah, every user worldwide saw that for over 24 hours. But yeah, ultimately, it seems that the the process weren't really particularly massive, even though they immediately um, came in and got led by these uh, relatively famous artists inside Cuba, and maybe we can talk about that later. So I mean, ultimately, the. The sort of juncture between the reality and the uh, the perception in the media that you get if you were just sort of passively consuming this is, is enormous. And a lot of the time that's down to really quite um, quite uh, devious methods the media have used. I mean, I caught Fox News, for instance, uh, blurring oh, out. Oh, wait, I was going to ask you about yeah, that, Yeah, Yeah, Fox uh, News um, blurring <laughs> out certain signs uh, in their protest of the uh, Cuban um of the, sorry, of their coverage of the uh, Cuban protests. And uh, they were intersposed with uh, Ted Cruz talking about how the police are beating people in the streets and how everybody in Cuba yearns for freedom. But uh, I found the raw footage and the the signs actually said, Viva la Revolución Cubana, along with the Cuban Revolution. And another one said, uh, Las calles son de los revolucionarios, uh, which is the streets belong to the revolutionaries, which is a classic communist saying. So these guys were actually pro-government protesters uh, supporting the government and protesting against what was going on. And yet Fox News decided to blur those images out and then use them as evidence of how big this protest was. Because ultimately, a lot of the footage of the anti- uh, or the counter-protests which were in support of the government certainly seemed that there were more people there than the anti-government protests. And that's really quite telling. If this, was, um, if this was a storm in a teacup, if this was like the NED and the other three-letter agencies in Washington shooting their shot and going for a regime change, it really didn't go very well. You know, I'm kind of reminded of that Pirates of the Caribbean meme. It's like, you know, you, you are without doubt the very worst colour revolution that you, I've ever seen. And that's ultimately what I think happened in Cuba. It is
0: quite strange that Fox News, as sloppy as they've been in the past, would do something like that that could be so easily exposed as being completely blatantly manipulative. I mean, because why would they be blurring out the signs? I mean, what do they have, like McDonald's logos on them or like Nike, you know, like like they blur out like shirts and like rap videos. I mean, it, it is it is odd and would make people curious and you immediately discovered what they were doing. So it just seems... Extra sloppy. And then, on top of that, what I find interesting here, Alan, and maybe you can comment on this, not to say that the mainstream media, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, uh, haven't unanimously pushed the same regime change agenda in the last four years. At times they have, but now there's this perception that they you know, that there's different, that there are different sides, you know, like that Fox News is like anti the, you know, the US, the intelligence, national security uh, establishment in in Washington, there's this weird false perception of that. But yet we see all these uh, mainstream media TV networks, these 24-hour news channels, more or less equally inflating and completely exaggerating uh, this, the supposed, you know, uh, revolution happening in Cuba. So, what do do you notice that as well, or do you think that's indicative of anything?
2: I mean, ultimately, the difference in perspective from Fox News to MSNBC about this is pretty minor. I mean, Fox News will throw in some stuff about how socialism is inherently, uh, you know, inherently authoritarian and doesn't work, whereas maybe MSNBC will talk about the conditions that. Uh, Cubans live under and really push a more humanitarian intervention message because ultimately that sort of message is aimed at liberals it's not aimed at conservatives who are pretty much always uh, on board with whatever regime change idea the CIA or whatever other three-letter agency in Washington has so yeah ultimately that sort of humanitarian angle kind of shows up a little bit more in the New York Times or MSNBC or CNN but ultimately it's the same take-home message which are which is these protests are big, they're legitimate, and we should support them. And that's uh, what you get from corporate media all around the world, uh, because ultimately the Cuban government and the Cuban experiment, which has been going on since 1959, is a threat to the US in the sense that it's a threat of a good example. It shows that there is another way to organize society that... um, that the end of history didn't happen in the 90s, like Francis Fukuyama said, and ultimately we can at least think about a better world. We can look to Cuba and think, well, there are things we could copy there. We can things we can learn from there. We can there are things that we shouldn't do. But ultimately, Cuba is kind of an example of uh, something else that could be going on because there's a lot of positives that everybody should know about Cuba uh, because they certainly reflect badly on the U.S. Like for instance, Cuba has free healthcare when the U.S. doesn't. Cuba's uh, uh, maternal, uh, sorry, their um, their, mater- their death rate for babies is much lower than the U.S. Their life expectancy is considerably higher, uh, well, by a few months anyway, which is amazing for an island that's been under blockade for 60 years. So, yeah, ultimately, I think uh, generally the coverage is pretty sameish whether you're watching uh, CNN or whether you're watching Fox.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you outlined, Alan, it's pretty egregious. Right. And, and insidiously so, because it will be these outlets posting pro-government demonstrations. And you can see this based on numerous slogans that are actually revolutionary s- slogans on these flags, on these signs, posting them because they are the, the biggest crowd shots that they can find. As you said, everyone wants that iconic mass demo shot from, you know, an aerial perspective. And that didn't happen. So then they have to go with these crowd shots that are just... The most people amassed at a certain area at a given time, and it all happened to be (laughs) pro-government demos. And so you just saw this repeated over and over again. It was just fascinating. I mean, everywhere from foreign policy to New York Times, I think, um, and everyone in between. And like, were there any retractions to this? I mean, how? It's just crazy. It's like just days later, do they just like put? a line being like, oh, by the way, these were inaccurate? Or do they not even bother to try to retract this? Because then you actually show the New York Times changing after it was published, an article that said hundreds were marching to then thousands were marching. As you point out, in a town of merely 45,000 people, it does seem hard to believe that thousands of people would be out in the streets, especially if you have zero documentation of it.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's crazy how the New York Times did that. I mean, people were using the New York Times as kind of like, counterweight to so much of the regime change propaganda saying, look, even the New York Times is saying only hundreds of people were out on the streets. And then that mysteriously gets changed. (laughs) There was was no, and it got changed to thousands of people. So it went from hundreds of people nationwide to thousands of people in this small town. As Abby said, it only had 45,000 people. Uh, We also saw shots of, uh, as you said, pro-government marches uh, being said that these are anti-government marches, even though if you know anything about Cuba, they were all holding massive red and black banners, which is, you know, the colour of communism. And they could clearly be seen that it said 26 Julio, which is the 26th of July movement, which is Fidel Castro's political party, his political movement. So really anyone who knows about Cuba or even has access to Google should really have been aware of this. And uh, we saw it in the Guardian, the Financial Times, the Boston Globe. A ton of outlets did this. A couple of them, including the Guardian, did go back and say uh, we missed... They changed the picture and said we actually, Mm. you know, uh, got this wrong. But that was only after uh, tweets from me and other people went viral pointing this out. So they were getting absolutely lambasted online and felt like they had to change something. But yeah, ultimately... There's so little um, negative consequences for media when they lie about official enemies like Venezuela or North Korea or in this case Cuba or whether it's Iran or Russia or what have you. There's no pushback there. Nobody's going to lose their job if they overstate the case against Vladimir Putin or overstate the case against, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini or, or whoever because these guys are official enemies. In fact, you might even get promoted if you do that. However, you know, if you kind of undersell uh, the importance of any protests or any sort of anti-government demonstrations going on in enemy states, then uh, you might find yourself uh, not having your contract renewed at these big corporate media outlets, because ultimately that's what you're there for. If you're that person's man in in Havana, you know what you're there for. And you're not there to tell uh, an accurate and nuanced story about Cuba. Yeah,
0: and it's also interesting you know at, at what direction this debate takes because even people you know and it's hard to separate social media and regular mainstream media takes at this point because they just become sort of enmeshed together but I started seeing this take sort of on the evening of this the these protests happening where people on the left some maybe more liberal people but they were still saying things like you know, I think that the embargo is terrible and I and I think that what the US has done to Cuba is terrible, but let's not go around just saying that the CIA is involved in this because that's like really irresponsible. And it's, <laughs> it, it's almost like a form of gaslighting because then what you see is uh, the uh, Reuters or AP, I forgot exactly which outlet it was, uh, said that a massive pro-government march was just all the government astroturfing it so it's like it's okay for the mainstream media to say that the cubans are the cuban government is creating these like fake astroturf movements but then like there's people on twitter policing other leftists saying like don't just say it was the cia like you don't know that like i hate the cia but don't say so i don't know i just find that interesting alan and I, i know i'm kind of going off on a rant but just like in venezuela everyone who is going out there Apparently, it has a gun to their head. That's sort of how they're representing anybody who's pro-government, and maybe that's why Fox News blurred out those flags or those signs that were pro-government because those people don't look like they're being coerced; they look really genuine. So I don't know. What do you? What's your comment on that, Ellen?
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the majority of Americans do not have a passport. It used to be much higher, but it's still the majority of Americans. And most of the people who do use it only to go to Mexico, either to visit relatives or to go to like spring break destinations like Cancun. Very few people actually travel around the world, and what that means is um, all of our uh, all of our images and thoughts about other countries, particularly in the global south, come mediated through the media which for the vast majority of people means a handful of massive transnational corporations essentially controlling everything we read, hear or see about Cuba, Venezuela, anywhere really in Africa, Asia, Latin America or Eastern Europe. And so ultimately they have the ability to kind of paint whatever picture they want because we don't have this sort of background understanding of what's going on. And so ultimately if the media says that uh, everybody hates the government in uh, our enemy countries. You don't really have any sort of uh, background to tell you that that's not correct. So they they don't know that, you know, the majority of Cubans when polled say that they are revolutionaries and they support uh, what happened in 1959 and they want the country essentially to carry on, on broadly the same path, even if they don't support the government or their local officials on all things. Ultimately, yeah, that's uh, kind of what happens. Uh, we get the position where the the media really dictates the conversation that we have around uh, other countries particularly in the global south the ones that americans don't go to and so ultimately we do get this position where even on the left we have people who are like you know i often call them like raytheon progressives who like they they speak in the language of human rights but th- and as soon as some you know uh some organization like the NED or USCID, which is funded by the US government, starts uh, talking about a humanitarian intervention in the Middle East or in Latin America, suddenly they're totally on board with it because they just don't know what's going on. And that's a real problem because ultimately, this is one thing that Empire Files gets really, really uh, perfectly right. Ultimately, the United States is an empire and we have to start with that as our basis of understanding. And we have to start with the basis of being highly sceptical about doing any kind of intervention in any country. Because if we know the history, the US has overthrown well over 50 countries since the end of World War II, uh, the governments of 50 countries. Uh, It's you know, in 2016, it was bombing seven countries simultaneously. The United States doesn't go around helping other countries in that way. It goes around destroying governments and bringing in regimes which are more conducive to big, uh, big American corporations. And so that's really what happens when we talk about humanitarian intervention. And so anybody who calls themselves leftists or anti-imperialists or progressives or Anyone who's like kind of anti-establishment should really start with a fundamental skepticism of anything anyone in a position of power tells you about another country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And social media, as you mentioned, plays a huge role in controlling the narrative today, especially to younger people. Uh, I didn't realize that Twitter had an editorial line where they actually choose, you know, not based on hashtags or engagement, but just actually they can pick whatever story they want to headline on the the top international news, which is what they did with Cuba for over 24 hours. You saw tons and tons of like these young influencer people on Instagram talking about SOS Cuba, Um, you know, artists and celebrities and politicians, everyone had something to say, yet. I went on the Joe Rogan show about a week ago. I talked about this, Alan, and I and and I'm not the same person who has experienced the brunt of this. But um, other people who have just simply put things out on, let's say, Soapbox or just like an Instagram story, they are getting cut, put up on these SOS Cuba, Miami based accounts and generating tens of thousands of allegedly real you know, Cubans based in Miami. I don't know how many of these people are bots. I didn't like look at how many Twitter accounts were just recently created, but it's just such a stark uh, discrepancy when you look at what is being bolstered and aided and abetted by social media. And then what is being used to just like, you know, you are, you are um, like experiencing a barrage. I mean, My friends have had to lock their accounts. They were sent death threats, rape threats. Um, I haven't gotten those types of things. But I have like blocked like over a thousand people who are being directed at all of my accounts um, talking to me about this and saying, you know, criticizing me, calling me all kinds of crazy shit. And also, of course, trolling Joe Rogan and saying I'm I'm a liar and I'm being paid by the dictatorship, you know, the typical kind of things. And then you saw this recent report um, posted by Ollie Vargas from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, where Apparently sixty-eight thousand Twitter accounts were created during the coup in Bolivia to shape public opinion Jesus. and make it seem like coup supporters were far more numerous than they really were. I mean, that is a really astounding number number, Alan. Yeah. I, I guess just comment on that. Like, is this safe to assume that this kind of shit is happening in every instance of regime change that the US has a hand in? Like who is making these fake accounts? And just like the disproportionality of like if you take a stand on this, the right stand, similarly similarly to Venezuela. You will get fucking crazy amounts of hate and people like lobbied at you uh, being directed from these accounts that are somehow signal boosted and and or funded by someone in power.
2: Of course it's some of it is really, really crude. Um, just one comment on Twitter itself. Uh, I think a lot of us still think of social media as this amazing place where everybody's equal and we can all have our say. but ultimately social media, They're not these uh, companies that exist only in the ether. They're brick-and-mortar companies, and most of them have their headquarters in California, which means they are subject to American rules and American regulations. And in the last few years, we've really seen uh, the big ones like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google becoming increasingly intermeshed with uh, the national security state. One example of this for Twitter, for instance, was... In uh, 20, I think it was late 2018, or maybe late 2019, it was revealed that Twitter's, uh, a senior Twitter executive responsible for the Middle East, was actually an active duty member of the British 77th Brigade, which is the British Army's um, online disinformation campaign. It's their unit that does psychological operations around the world. And what happened to him? Did he get fired in shame? This was right at the point where everybody was talking about foreign interference in our media and our, our election. No, he's still in his position today. His name's Gordon McMillan. You can look him up. And so ultimately, that's kind of the sort. That's kind of an indicator of the sort of relationship Twitter has with the U.S. government. And uh, with regards to Cuba, I mean, Twitter has constantly taken a very hostile position to. Uh, members of uh, the Cuban government or its supporters. It has uh, suspended accounts from Cuban officials, suspended accounts from official Cuban media, which have got links to the government. And this happens with pretty much any enemy country, whether it's Venezuela or China, where on one day they decided to delete more than 170,000 Chinese accounts, which were generally pro-government and anti-US. Happens with Iran, it happens with Russia. But somehow Twitter never seems to be able to find uh, Western countries like the US, UK or Germany doing (laughs) the same thing. Um, This this latest thing that's been going on, it has been really, really crude. I mean, I've posted videos about how the same exact phrase uh, replete with the same small typos has been posted by literally hundreds of people all at the same time, all in the same couple of days talking about how... Pretty much it says, you know, this is the biggest protest since 1994. My country yearns for freedom. Please send help. <laughs> that sort of thing. And um, yeah, I mean, Twitter was really, really slow to do this, uh, to actually respond to this. And as I said, they actually put this at the top of their What's Happening page. So for days, uh, everybody saw what was going on. But yeah, ultimately, only a few days later were these accounts banned. The first person using SOS Cuba was not a Cuban. It was, a, it was actually a Spanish person, but his... Uh, account is now being uh, suspended and deleted as well most most of the ones I saw seem to just uh, have a very sort of basic bio with like you know Maria6731612 which is a very generic uh, username which is uh, often given to you by Twitter so if you're setting up a bot network that's the sort of name you get and they've got a Cuban flag in their profile and they don't post anything for months and suddenly it's all about how we should support the Cuban protest. The whole thing was really, really crude, and it seemed like it was a very low-grade operation to try and influence the world. And it seems to have worked, because the, the US government has come in and said, actually, we're not going to be dropping the sanctions, we're going to be changing the sanctions so they're even more stringent. And so Trump's um, Trump's decision to stop remittances seems like it's basically going to be rubber-stamped by the Biden administration, who more or less promised that that, uh, there would be a thawing of relations with Cuba like what happened under Obama. So I think ultimately, even though the ultimate goal, which was to overthrow the government, completely failed, they may have got uh, one of their subsidiary goals, which was to change U.S. policy. And then, yeah, ultimately, this is the excuse the U.S. needs not to normalise relationships with uh, that Caribbean island. I mean
1: sadly it seems like the majority of people who just are kind of taking a back seat and just kind of passively consuming news and media just sees this and they're just like these are huge protests and they see all of the people with the SOS Cuba and just all the Cuban flags and their avies and stuff and like they're not realizing that these are astroturfed or that they're bots or whatever. So I I think it does work in the sense even though it may be very crude and not well thought out. Like I think it works. To the extent that it just people just see it, they they kind of register it and then they move on. But it's just in the background now of their consciousness. And that that's a huge fucking problem, you know?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, another way which was uh, another way these protests are very suspicious, was that uh, there's a lot of big hip-hop artists and uh, musicians came out immediately to try and lead these protests. Obviously, Pitbull, probably most people saw, he, he wants Jeff Bezos to get involved in overthrowing the government.
1: Yeah, AOC <laughs> liked the tweet, sadly. What?
2: Yeah, oh, dude. Oh, Ilhan Omar, I saw. Uh, like oh my God, I'm oh my, sorry. Okay, let's Ilhan... even squad in a second. Even let's worse, say that for a That's even fucking worse.
1: Do you guys want to get it out now? Shit, dude.
0: Wait, so, yeah, like, I guess let's just really quickly then just (laughs) jump to that because social media-wise, we still have a little bit more to talk about with that, but, like, let's just talk about what politicians had to say. Like, some of the people we might expect to be good on this issue, was there any U.S. senator, congressman, maybe even a mayor or governor, uh, Alan, that you could say actually had a really solid take on this, uh, you know, lifting the embargo or anything like that. And also who had a bad take who should have had a better take?
2: Well, the very, very worst takes unsurprisingly came from Miami or Florida Republicans. So like the mayor of Miami of said that we need to start doing airstrikes on Havana immediately. Whereas uh um, Florida congressman... Which is something a
0: mayor should do, should encourage. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, Florida Congressman uh, Anthony Sabatini said that he should, uh, that the US should immediately start convincing high ranking communist officials to uh, assist in the transition towards democracy. And if they don't acquiesce to US demands, they should be executed. So he's talking about the assassination of the entire Cuban leadership there. So I'm not surprised about those sorts of uh, reactionary takes from Republicans in Florida. But you know, even when you go to the more extreme left end of the official spectrum where it 's like you know Bernie Sanders and AOC most of their uh, most of their comments were something like, "Well, I totally agree that Cubans should be protesting their authoritarian government, but also we should be lifting the blockade and I just feel like you know ultimately we are responsible." in the West for what our politicians do and what our government does and so ultimately we should be looking to end the blockade completely and what Cubans do inside their own country is pretty much none of our business and I think that's really the take we should be getting and unfortunately I don't think any senior elected official from either party really came out of this looking pretty good to me in a way.
1: Yeah, uh- i was very disappointed by aoc's comment and you know so many other people i actually didn't see one good take just an unequivocal like end the blockade we have no right to dictate what the cuban people want or need um but we can do something about what our government is doing and i didn't see any of that i mean black lives matter actually put out yeah. a really good statement and everyone was fucking up in arms about that um, that was surprisingly good it was it was very very good. Yeah, yeah it was really yeah. good and I hope it I hope a lot of liberals saw that and, you know, kind of took note of that. But yeah, just one quick comment about these absurd bloodthirsty neocons based in Miami and it really shows you this is who the fucking Miami Cubans elected. This mayor who wants to kill his own people and sanction them to death. I mean, are people like understanding <laughs> like the severity of how crazy that is? Like that is so fucking crazily fascist. And you really, it doesn't take much to really like find out the fascist nature of the people who are exiled. I mean, this is the bourgeoisie who wants to take power in Cuba. You know, it's like, it, it is an interesting case study. And like, who are these people living my, in Miami who, who could inevitably take power if the U.S. does intervene? And just what is the nature of what they're calling for? I mean, starving people, putting more sanctions on people and bombing them. And that's why you see psychopaths like Marco Rubio, you know, being quoted and, and paraded around by these people, too. But it, it's crazy how many of them there are, because the fact that so many liberals pander to Miami Cubans, I mean, I don't know how many like thousands of people like really comprise of this base there, but it does seem like a significant amount if, if there's so much fucking pandering done to them by these politicians. But um, but yeah, no, it is really extreme, the stuff that they're calling for.
2: Yeah, I mean. Miami is often called by uh, historians and sociologists the capital of Latin America. And that's because all, well not all, but uh, a lot of the most rich, uh, richest and most powerful people in Latin America live in Miami. And that's because either they were the former presidents who've been kicked out or uh, they are the sons or grandsons of uh, people who used to be in power uh, in these dictatorial regimes which ruled Latin America for most of the second half of the 20th century. There are people who fled with, sometimes with literally with suitcases full of cash there. There's a lot of people who used to be in, you know, secret services in Latin America who now live in Miami. Um, One example was Luis Posada Carrias, who was a Venezuelan terrorist who bombed that Cubana airliner, killing dozens of people, including uh, the Cuban Olympic fencing team. He just, you know, quietly walked around uh, the Florida streets for the rest of his life and died a natural death. And those are the sorts of people that live in Miami. It's the elite of every country. It's the elites of Chile, of Bolivia, of Venezuela, of Brazil, and they all mix together and they all have kind of the same opinion. I mean, one example of this is uh, I know in 2013 in the Venezuelan election, which the socialist candidate Nicolas Maduro won by 51% to 49%, I believe between ninety-five and ninety-nine percent of Venezuelans voting in Miami voted for the far-right candidate Henrique Capriles Radonsky. So that kind of gives you an example of just how much there is an echo chamber there, how much the bubble is uh, really, you know, uh, really, really strong, and there's a real disciplining effect on people uh, in that community where you can't really say anything good about Cuba or Venezuela or Bolivia, otherwise, you know, you're just uh, set upon. And so, yeah, it's a real disciplining effect. And it's also got a really good effect uh, for the US government as well. These people act as a sort of uh, ideological barrier to change. In, in the US because, you know, Washington can just say, well, you know, we can't do anything. The Cuban-American community will, won't stop us. Exactly. They'll just stop us. But, of course, these people are never going to be voting for a Democrat, so just stop pandering to them completely. This is why people like AOC or Ilhan Omar or anybody who thinks they're on the left, even a Democrat, These Miami Cubans are never going to vote for you. So there's no point trying to win them over. And yet they always seem to do that. And I think it's kind of a sort of Charlie Brown trying to kick that football situation where they actually know they're going to fail. But it's very good because it means they can just be let themselves be drawn to the right, which is where they naturally want to go ultimately. It's one of the most useful immigrant community
0: engines in the United States for some kind of regime change rhetorical leveraging tool I guess is one way to say it and i, I try to think of any other community in the United States that serves that same purpose and it's it's hard to th- it's actually hard i mean i guess soviet immigrants Yeah, maybe yeah during yeah. the Joshua cold war has a whole podcast about i was it. just going to talk weapon. say the weaponized immigrant yeah. concept yeah i mean why don't you Do you have a comment on how that might relate to this? Because sometimes I get, I guess you could say, M-E-K vibes from the way that this local and Miami Cuban community kind of talks about Cuba. And I'm just wondering, what is that? is this sort of a Cold War holdover that's like they're kind of going off an old CIA sort of script from back in the day? Is that why they talk the way they do? I don't know.
2: Comment on that, Alan. I mean, ultimately... I don't want to say like, I don't want to sound like I'm just repeating a meme, but so many of these people, Cuban-Americans, were literally part of the Batista military dictatorship. So these people were the torturers, they were the heads of police, they were high-ranking members in the army or the judiciary. And they knew that, you know, if they stayed in Cuba, they would potentially be thrown in jail for their crimes. So they had to flee with, uh, with uh, their families to the United States and so many of these people are literally assets for various three letter agencies whether the CIA or uh, NSA or whatever uh, these people you know actively collaborate with the US government and you know they've had their property confiscated from them they don't really want a negotiated settlement they want blood they want to take their land back they want you know their plantations back they want to you know, uh reemploy their uh, the descendants of their employees in the same sort of surf-like, peon-like conditions that they had up until 1959. So ultimately it's kind of the mentality of a slave master who's lost control of uh, of his plantation after a rebellion. They don't want a negotiated settlement. They want to go back there with guns and, you know, kill the people who led the uprising and then stamp their authority back on the island. And I think that's really, you know, that's the sort of mentality that goes on uh, among these people.
1: And sometimes the mask slips and you hear just that. I mean, a a lot of them will pretend like this is about, oh, we're starving and oh, the the regime is depriving us of medicine, which, as we know, that's not really true. Um, But then sometimes they'll just be like, I can't own the business that I want. And you're like, oh, okay, so what what exactly is going on here?
2: Yeah, I mean, you've uh, you've uh, got some good material of uh, talking to Venezuelans <laughs> like that, haven't you? Um, when yeah, you know no, they exactly. say, "Oh, we're starving; we can't get what we want." But ultimately, in these countries, which absolutely do have problems, like Cuba and Venezuela, do have problems with uh, food and shortages of goods and medicines. Most of which you could say are down to actually U.S. policy and the blockade, which uh, prohibits them uh, trading with any of the countries. When you actually look at who's affected by these things it's almost always the poor that are far far more affected by these sorts of shortages the rich by the nature that the fact that they've got so much more power and influence tend to be able to skirt around these uh, shortages really well but when you actually look at who supports the government in uh, these uh, these countries it tends to be the people that are most badly affected by these shortages who still stick with the government whereas the people at the top of society who hate the government are least affected. Yet they call upon the shortages as if that's the reason why they oppose the government, as if they, you know, 10 years ago, they were raving socialists. And now actually, they've, you know, changed to a right wing position. It's really disingenuous. But ultimately, that's been the story for decades in Latin America.
1: Yeah, it's the talking points that they know will work, right, to generate that kind of uh, consciousness that they're looking for. And you're totally right. It's such a great point because all the people trolling me, you know, all of them were just really rich fucking looking people in like mansions and pools and shit, like, f- like wearing Gucci and stuff. I was like, you're actually not the people I'm worried about. Yeah. That's like, when
2: th- when, you, when people say, oh, talk to a Venezuelan, talk to a Cuban. It's like, right. well, first of all, maybe I don't speak Spanish. Well, I do speak Spanish, but if I don't speak Spanish, you're <laughs> stuck talking to people who speak English, which means you're basically stuck talking to the Florida community of Latinos, or people in those countries that do speak English and do have an internet access. And that correlates very closely with being in the top 5 or 10% of the country. And that, again, people at the top of society who live in penthouses and mansions and have servants tend not to be, you know, so pro-socialism. And that's, you know, frankly the thing. So when they, talk, when they say about talk to a Cuban, what they really mean is talk to a Cuban who has the same opinions as me.
0: Well, yeah, that's what one of the funny parts about that whole argument, too, is it's supposed to sound like it's almost encouraging non-racism. Like, no, talk to a Cuban. Like, you're a white person sort of speaking out of turn. Like, talk to a Cuban to see what's up. But then that in and of itself is racist because it's like, what, Cubans don't have a diversity of opinion? You think there's just all sort of one hive mind that all hates, you know, the, the Cuban government? I mean, that's, their, that's the implication. So it is just sort of funny that that's the argument they often use, Alan. And then also, I, you know, something that I remember uh, quite well from the sort of conspiracy culture, Operation Northwoods might be one of the most over-the-top, on-paper, sort of bizarre black ops things that that we were going to do to a foreign country in, in American history that we actually have on paper. It almost sounds cartoonish what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were suggesting to do, to basically have an excuse to invade Cuba, which was to fake the, a Cuban attack on an American airliner full of, uh, I think, a fake soccer team or something like that. Uh, so that being said, Alan, I mean, let's talk about something that's a lot more low-key, but it's also some kind of weird sort of ops, you know, shadow kind of thing, but it's happening on the internet. This was called Zun- Zunio, And you mentioned um, hip-hop artists earlier, like Pitbull pushing this, but Zunio ended up being some kind of fake Twitter-like platform that was being sponsored by the State Department, apparently, I think, being put out there by USAID, I think, in order to foment some kind of Arab Spring-style regime change in Cuba. Um, Comment on that, was there sort of a a local hip-hop connection to that as well? And and
2: comment on why you don't think this is ultimately succeeded so um immediately after the protests went live um we saw a lot of uh outlets like npr and the new york times publish articles about how the protests were being led by cuban hip-hop artists and for me Mm -hmm. that immediately rang massive alarm (laughs) bells because uh in my phd on uh i was actually doing it about venezuela but uh I came across a lot of books talking about how the NED and the U- and USAID tried to penetrate the local Cuban hip-hop scene to try to make it uh, go towards a more anti-government uh, stance. Sujata Fernandez has actually written a couple of books about this. Um, we've got the documents, they're on NED and USAID's websites, talking about how they're trying to empower uh, local hip-hop artists to be leaders for social change. But ultimately, when the U.S. government talks about democracy in Cuba, we know what that means. That is synonymous with regime change. Um, Cuban hip-hop was really popular in the late 90s and early 2000s because it, was really, um, it really touched a nerve with people. Uh, these rappers who were mostly Afro-Cubans were talking about things like racism, which really didn't get much talk uh, in Cuban society. The U.S. saw that as kind of a wedge issue that they could maybe, perhaps, try to drive uh, between certain segments of society, like between uh, white Cubans and black Cubans. They didn't seem to have that much um, success with that. Ultimately, in the two thousands, because uh, what you know, Cuban hip hop artists thought back then about how they should improve society just didn't uh, just didn't like go together with what the NED or the CIA or USAID thought. <laughs> Uh, should happen, but yeah, in the last <laughs> few years, uh, they've really had a big push. If you go to those organizations' websites and have a look at their grant publications uh, for the last few years, you see that uh, musical artists have a, uh, really feature heavily on them. And one of them is Yo L, who's now who now lives in Miami, and his song "Patria Evida apparently became something of an anthem for these protests. And there's uh, there's a live uh, NED grant. Uh, on their website right now, you've got until July thirty to to ask for as much as one million. Oh, sorry, it's USAID. You've got you've got until July thirty to uh, apply for at least or as much as one million dollars uh, in sort of groups that will for projects that will um, that will bring about some sort of positive change in Cuban society. And they specifically reference Patria Evita. And last year, you can have a look. Uh, You can see on their website talking about how they've been giving Cuban hip-hop artists all this money to uh, lead protests and lead social change. So I frankly was not surprised one little bit to see that Cuban hip-hop artists apparently immediately took the lead in supporting and then leading these protests nationwide. So frankly, that was something that again made me think, this is such an op. And people in the know know about this, but ultimately, if you're not reading the grants database for these uh, for these organisations, you don't know about it, and it seems uh, much more believable and much more grassroots to you. Um, on Zunzunio, that was a Twitter a Twitter like app that the CIA itself uh, or the US government uh, started secretly, and the point of it was to become like a really good messaging service to uh, you know spread it all across Twitter. Uh, sorry, all across Cuba. At its height, it had around 40,000 Cuban users, and that was quite a lot 10 years ago for a country that doesn't really have a lot of smartphones and internet. Um, but the the idea was, you know, they would uh, start, you get this thing ubiquitous on people's phones, provide a really good service, but slowly start dripping in anti-government sentiment to it. And eventually they would start saying things like, you know, there's a protest going on in the main square, everybody get there, now, now, now. And they would flood people's inboxes with messages talking about how everybody's here. And they would basically try to use it as a regime change app. Ultimately, it didn't go that far because um, it was kind of found out that the US government um, U.S. government was behind it. Interestingly, uh, the US State Department actually had meetings with Jack Dorsey from Twitter about trying to get him to buy the company to try to hide the fact that they were behind it. Now it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not known what happened. I found out that Suzanne Hall from the uh, US State Department had a meeting with Jack Dorsey. I think it was in Mexico, trying to cajole and uh, convince him to buy the company. Jack Dorsey has not talked about this um, publicly. I've tried to find out more information about this, but can't because wow. neither uh, the State Department nor Twitter are talking about this. So we don't actually know the extent of what happened there. But ultimately, Zunzunio failed in 2012. But my position is is that Twitter, in the last few years, has become much closer to the U.S. government than the U.S. national security mm-hmm. state. And so these sorts of crazy, Cold War-sounding-style projects aren't really necessary anymore because Twitter just does the U.S. government's job for it.
0: So you think all those hot fights on the Hill against Jack Dorsey or uh, by Ted Cruz or? Are- are not legitimately
2: uh, <laughs> fighting back against the, the Silicon Valley elites? Oh, listen, those, those are little squabbles <laughs> between two members of the establishment fighting over minor things. Ultimately, their goals are largely in line with each other.
1: And you can check this out on an article called The Bay of Tweets. Documents point to U.S. hand in Cuba protests by Alan McLeod. Um, and you cite actually the Uh, co-founder of the national endowment for democracy alan weinstein who once told the washington post quote a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the cia so this is not hyperbole this is exactly this is spelled out (laughs) by the ned and usaid in, in terms of what they're doing to quote unquote fund civil society organizations on the ground another another fascinating thing that they did was um similar to pakistan you know, created that fake HIV prevention workshop in Cuba, which really just sows so much distrust. It basically just does such a disservice to people who are actually trying to get like preventative health care and stuff and like deal with HIV treatment when you just like associate it now with a CIA plot. <laughs> It's crazy.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that a similar thing happened in Pakistan, didn't it? They were actually yeah. trying to find Bin Laden bin through Laden, some sort of yeah. brain scheme. Apparently, it might have actually had some success, but it was all under, under the cover that they were giving free polio shots to people. But they were actually, for some reason, giving them placebos, and I don't know, taking their DNA somehow, and that might have helped find them, find where Bin Laden was. But ultimately, this has caused a massive uptake of vaccines, vaccine skepticism in Pakistan, which has led to the deaths of uncountable numbers of people from polio, which has really come back with a vengeance. And now with COVID-19 and everyone needing to get a vaccine, I can't imagine that's going to have a positive effect on that either. So ultimately, they will, you know, they'll use any sort of uh, leverage they can and hang the consequences. Talking about vaccines, of course, Cuba's developed two of its own uh, uh, Cuban, I don't want to say homemade because that kind of denigrates it, but um, nationally made uh, COVID-19 vaccines. But they're having serious trouble trying to get the raw materials and the syringes from other countries because they simply are too afraid to trade with Cuba because of the U.S. sanctions, which might mean that those companies and those nations are put on some sort of blacklist and basically stopped from trading with the U.S. after that. So Cuba's in this crazy position where it wants to give away this vaccine for pennies to all these other countries, but it can't, and it can't even uh, push and roll out its own vaccine because it has a lack of syringes and raw materials. So we've got a situation where in the United States where there's a glut of vaccines, but so many people don't want to get them. But in the global South, there are billions of people who want a vaccine but can't get them. And that's largely because of US and Western government policy as well. It's fucking disgusting. It is an
1: apartheid, vaccine apartheid, completely led and perpetrated by the U.S. And it's absolutely disgusting. Um, And I want to get into that, Alan, but I just wanted to comment really quickly about, you know, this is being funded. These, quote unquote, civil society organizations are being funded to the tune of over 20 million dollars. And that's just through USAID. Um, That goes a really far way in a society like Cuba. And just look at these grant numbers. I mean, a million dollars here and there, $100,000 here and there, $500,000 here and there to like certain groups and hip hop artists and stuff like that. It's just absolutely astounding that this is where taxpayer dollars are going. <laughs> like, I just can't wrap my mind around it. And then you have just the stenography from like NPR New York Times being like the hip hop song that's driving Cuba's protests. Like, what the fuck? This is just so, so optimistic. Op-y. you know it's just like so hilarious but let's talk about the embargo because another thing that I'm, I'm getting trolled relentlessly about is like no the embargo is not what's causing these shortages like the embargo is only targeting the regime the regime that's not why there is a lack of medicine that's not why there's a lack of food as you just clearly cited yeah I mean Cuba is on the cutting edge of medical research they've created the first uh you know treatment of HIV transmission to Babies. They've created the first uh, lung cancer vaccine, if I'm not mistaken. There's so much there about what Cuba is doing to send doctor contingents around the world to fight the pandemic on the front lines, as well as like uh, be the first responders to natural disasters and stuff like that. So, of course, there needs to be this demonization against, oh, no, this is just all done for, you know, cynical purposes and stuff like that. But let's talk about the effects of the blockade, because in your Fair Media Watch article, you mentioned of course the extremely disproportionate coverage when it comes to like ecuador chile haiti who have been protesting you know u.s-backed regimes and such but i think the one primary thing missing from the analysis when it comes to venezuela iran or cuba of course is that u.s sanctions and and specifically when it comes to cuba the blockade the crippling 62-year blockade is a complete side note if it's mentioned at all So just go into that. Talk about the blockade and what the effects are of these sanctions, Alan.
2: Sure. So if you read corporate media, they will either not talk about the sanctions uh, or the blockade having a negative impact on Cuba or other countries that are under sanction as well, or that will be relegated to the penultimate or maybe even the final paragraph where they might mention something about the sanctions at the very end. But ultimately, the sanctions are really The key thing in Cuba, which is uh, driving the island's misery right now, Cuba has been under sanctions for over sixty years. This is a relatively small country of eleven million people, ninety miles off the coast of the U.S., which is under pretty much a complete blockade. If you are a ship and you want to go to Cuba, you can't go to the United States after that for a certain period of time. It's quite a long time. So ultimately, if you if you're a shipping company and you trade. Uh, with cuba or allow your vessels to be used for trade with cuba you are immediately on a blacklist to the united states and you could be uh you could be facing some serious uh serious serious penalties if you are a company and want to trade with cuba you cannot trade with the united states after that so obviously our trade is dominated by transnational corporations no corporation is going to decide to trade with cuba over a country of 330 million people which is the world's pretty much the world's biggest economy the world hegemon so there's a, a huge uh, disincentive for any company to trade with cuba also if any of your subsidiary companies trade with cuba the uh, the father company will get hit uh, so there's so there's just so much pressure not to trade with cuba And, uh, you know, the U.S. government says, oh, there's, uh, you know, exemptions for certain products like medical things. But they, if you read the documents about this, they deliberately make this very opaque, uh, specifically for the points to try to intimidate these countries and these uh, companies not to trade with Cuba. So what that means uh, for Cuba is is that essentially if they can't produce it on the island, they're screwed because they don't have it. And that's one of the reasons why if you go there, everybody's, you know, driving these bashed up cars that look like they're from another era because they are. They can't get the spare parts, they can't get the new cars in. And so ultimately they have to starve, they have to or you know, provide for themselves, they have to uh, you know, make do and mend. So they're in this crazy situation which is completely man made, and it's largely man made in Washington, DC. Of course the COVID nineteen pandemic has really hurt Cuba as well because it's an island that is based on tourism for a large uh, part of its economy. And that means the tens of thousands of people who go there every week, that's trickled down to a few. So pretty much everybody who is uh, reliant on tourism, which is, you know, most people in Havana in a lot of ways, they're out of a job. And so there is very much a feeling of worry, of discontent, of anger. But a lot of it is actually placed at the US government rather than their own government. And of course, um, Cuba can't import certain foods so it has to grow them themselves that means there are shortages of shortages of goods there are shortages of medicine there are even shortages of really critical stuff like for instance Cuba bought a bunch of ventilators from a Swiss company but that Swiss company got taken over by an American conglomerate and immediately the American uh, company thought, "We have to stop this and they stopped the um, they stopped the the export of ventilators to Cuba just as the pandemic was reaching its height. so this is having massive real world consequences for people and it 's amazing how well Cuba is doing, considering these sort of embargo it 's under ultimately this isn 't talked about much in the media because the media 's overarching narrative when talking about countries like Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua is that socialism doesn't work. And ultimately, if you were talking about these embargoes, you would immediately start getting a different framing uh, of what was going on there. You know, the US government wants everybody to think it's kind of like the stop hitting yourself, um, like uh, tactics, where it's like, you know, this is self-inflicted. This is not us doing it to you. This is yourself doing it to yourself. But yeah, Cuba's had to develop this incredible medical system, which is kind of the marvel of the world in a lot of ways. This tiny island that's producing its own COVID vaccines, it's you know HIV treatment, lung cancer vaccines, stuff like that. It's incredible what it can do. And the world is completely aghast at what's going on. There was just a vote in the United Nations. 184 to 2 was the vote, the US and Israel against it. That vote was to stop the embargo once and for all. This happens every year, nothing happens because the US controls the world and the United Nations is toothless if the US doesn't want anything to happen. But uh, a lot of people I think would be interested to know just how great the Cuban healthcare system is and how much positive effect it has on the world. Cuba might be one of the most popular countries on the entire planet if you were to poll the global south. That's because Tens of millions of people alive today have had contact with a Cuban doctor. Uh, Cuba has sent its doctors to dozens of countries around the world. Even in the pandemic, it was sending them to first world countries like Andorra and Italy, whereas, you know, Italy's neighbors like Switzerland and Germany and France were giving them nothing. Um, There are more Cuban, sorry, there are more African doctors in Africa who were trained in Cuba than we're trained in Africa, which is an incredible stat when you think about it. There is one school in Havana called uh, Elan, the, uh, the Cuban School of Medicine, which takes in people from all around the world, trains them for free and then sends them back to their local communities to help the poor. And there are even dozens of American students there right now who are getting trained in medicine on the Cuban government's dollar and are going to be sent back to their communities all across the, the country to um, provide free or subsidized healthcare to the poorest and most vulnerable groups. And so, you know, if, you, if you've ever used some sort of emergency clinic where you don't have to pay very much, a lot of the time you might, if you just ask them, where did you train? Sometimes they will be trained in Havana. And that's really the incredible thing that this tiny country can do. If you think of that, this is what Cuba can do under blockade, what could the US or a uh, a very powerful Western nation do if it really wanted to put its mind to it. And I think that's the thing about Cuba. If we start learning about what they can do, we start getting inspiration for what we could do at home. A really quick
1: comment is that I visited that school, Alan, and it was incredible. And they have put in place so many precautionary measures to prevent people from actually practicing medicine that have been trained at that school in the United States. There's so many disincentives for Americans, even though a lot of people don't want to get hundreds of thousands of dollars in, you know mired in student debt to become a doctor going through the, these absurd bureaucratic hoops in this country. And it's just so much easier. And as you mentioned, sponsored for free by the Cuban government to anyone in the world who wants to go and train to become a doctor. It, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, talking to these people from all over the world who chose to do that. And, you know, it's just incredible... Um, When you actually look at what's put in place to prevent this from getting out there. But I don't know, Robbie, if you wanted to comment on.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, obviously Cuba is just doing that to, um, you know, to make (laughs) themselves look good. I mean, they don't care about actually training people how to do medicine. I mean, don't you realize that? Just a PR coup for them.
2: Sorry. Yeah, man, they're uh, they're sending slaves, <laughs> human trafficking all over the world, as Mike Pompeo said. <laughs> yeah. These doctors are actually under slaves. the
0: guise of doctors, giving yeah. them stethoscopes and, and scrubs. Um, yeah, Alan, I mean, it's it's really it is impressive what Cuba has been able to do in the face of all this adversity. That's a, almost a really mild way to put it. it. It and it just does seem in a way that the U.S. government thought that they could destroy Cuba incrementally, maybe Bay Bay of Pigs didn't work out. That's also putting it mildly. But there's certain things we tried that didn't end up working. So ultimately, it does seem like sort of the autopilot program that was put in place was just this idea of trying to just starve Cuba or just strangle it into oblivion. And there are official documents going back to 1960 saying that by, quote, denying money and supplies to Cuba, unquote, the U.S. hopes to, quote, decrease monetary and real wages to bring about hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of the government. So on one hand, obviously this is awful, and it's it's really evil that the U.S. actually wrote something like this down. But on the other hand, it is impressive that Cuba has been able to resist this, but it must also really stick in the craw of certain U.S. officials that they haven't fallen yet. So I'm just wondering if you had a comment on that. Because, I mean, it does seem like an awfully punitive measure to still have in place. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. North Korea, you know, there's ability for us to fear monger about them being a threat to the United States here. Cuba is not saying anything threatening to the United States. In fact, they're offering to send doctors here constantly. That's That's how they're trying to interface with us. So it really does seem to be just US officials being punitive and keeping up this legacy policy. Like, does the public really even care? Is there even a threat? What's your comments on that, Alan?
2: Well, you know, I always say, I'm not the first person to say this, but international relations really work a lot like the mafia. And the US is the mafia, Don, and Cuba is this little tiny shopkeeper who doesn't want to pay protection money. And so ultimately, you don't sue Cuba for this. You go around and try and smash up their crap. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to... uh, make Cuba suffer as much as possible, make the economy scream, as uh, the famous quote goes. And, you know, in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union fell, they really had a lot of success with this. Cubans uh, were under a terrible blockade. They'd lost their big backer in the Soviet Union. Their crop, their sugar crop was basically worthless after that. They couldn't import food uh, at any sort of reasonable price. And there was absolute glee in the United States, Uh, ...that Cuba was about to fall. So in 1994, they increased the sanctions with the Helms-Burton Act... ...and they thought Cuba was about to fall to them like a ripe fruit. It was called the Special Period in Cuba... ...and ultimately, what Cubans did was they had to radically transform... ...their economy and their society as quickly as possible. And so what they, they did was immediately try to cut back on what they were importing... ...and try to grow as much food as possible... Cubans, I think, lost on average 12 pounds during the last uh, years of the 90s. But what actually ended up happening was it kind of led them to develop a much more sustainable economy and society, one that wasn't based on imports of massive amounts of oil, one which was based off of growing and producing things locally, especially food. And ultimately, when you look at the health outcomes, a lot of Cubans, uh, while they lost weight, they actually... Uh, gained a lot in terms of their overall health because, you know, they had to start cycling to work or they were growing their own local foods. They couldn't eat too much processed meat or processed foods. They were growing organic uh, crops, that sort of thing. So ultimately, the U.S. might have ended up helping them in some ways, which is certainly not what they were trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Um- well, don't worry, Alan. There's going
1: to be a humanitarian aid shipment, just like in Venezuela. There's an there's a fake Miami-based flotilla caravan on its oh way my to God, Havana no. right now.
0: <laughs> Holy shit! So and they're the, actually the, trying to copy Palestinian
1: pro-Palestinian <laughs> activists. That's amazing. And at the same time, at the same time, you have these Republican bloodthirsty monsters who are like, we need to enact the War Powers Act and like resolutions to what? Like, are, are, is
2: this serious right
1: now? Like, it's just insane. There's nothing going on.
2: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like... the, the Bay of Pigs ended up completely nonsensically. And so did uh, that Venezuelan coup last year, the Bay of Piglets, uh, where, you know, there were a few, <laughs> like, green berries were going to shoot themselves or shoot their way towards uh, the presidential palace. I think ultimately this one, their plan is to what sail towards, you know, Havana and then stop a few dozen miles away and shoot some fireworks off. Is that the plan? That's what I heard in a way. I mean, you know, you can do that. And then what, they're just going to go back to Key West and stay overnight in their penthouse suite at a hotel and that's it. I mean, they can do that if they want, but I don't think many Cubans are going to be impressed by that, frankly.
1: Well, I'm also seeing a lot of articles denouncing, of course, the authoritarian rule of the communist regime, talking about widespread crackdowns of protests mass arrests and quote sham trials you also heard this regurgitated from joe biden um and of course the thousands of people that are uh hollering at me are saying you know how dare you say you haven't seen evidence of this like they're killing us they're killing us in the streets um, look, I mean, I, I'm I'm open to seeing the evidence. I mean, have you found anything to corroborate these allegations? I'm sure there is repression to a certain extent. You know, it, it isn't a full democracy. As we know, there is a uniparty system. I mean, that's obvious. But in terms of like this extreme authoritarian repression... I'm not seeing anything to back this up. Alan, maybe you've seen something else because I have not seen any videos or photos other than there was a report of someone being killed and I'm not sure what the circumstances of that was. But it's kind of giving me the same vibes as Venezuela um, where it's Maduro's you know mass executing people in the street, ordering tanks to be running people. It's like literally when you when you parse through, it's hard to actually find corroborating evidence to this.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, the country is awash with journalists right now. And obviously, everybody's got a smartphone nowadays. The, uh, the coverage that, you know, the Miami Cubans and the anti-government uh, industry is uh, putting out there makes me, you know, I, they say it's, you know, this is uh, footage of repression. But when I see these protests, I think, wow, this is, these are like the most mildly and lightly police protests I've ever seen. You know, I've been involved in protests in Europe where, like, you know, I get kettled for six hours as a child and not allowed to, like, leave or anything like that. That doesn't seem to be happening there. I've seen a couple of uh, police, like, swing a truncheon at somebody who was punching them. But it doesn't really seem to be that much uh, worse than that. There have been dozens of arrests. uh, But again, I think, you know, if we're talking about people in glass houses that shouldn't throw stones, it doesn't seem to be... Certainly no more uh, badly policed than anything I've seen in the United States, and quite possibly a lot more a light touch than that. I mean, as you said, I mean, obviously, if you're in Cuba, you can, it's totally, completely fine to have uh, qualms about the government, to oppose the government on certain things. Obviously, the head of state in Cuba didn't change for decades. Uh, they do have um, elections there, but, you know, there are not political mm. parties in the same way as in the US or Western Europe. And they do have quite a high prison population, but ultimately this is all happening in the context of the world's largest superpower just to their north, threatening them with total annihilation all the time. I mean, if you think of anything comparable happening in the US, like for instance in World War II, what happened when the US started to uh, uh, oppose Japan in World War II? They immediately locked up the entire Japanese population and stuck them in a concentration camp. Or or many, as that's nothing like that is happening in Cuba. There's far more freedoms uh, in in Cuba than there was in the U. S. for Japanese Americans in World War Two, and so ultimately, I think you know, uh, I think that it's quite remarkable how libertarian it is in terms of uh, freedom to protest, freedom to criticize the government, freedom to do what you want considering uh the massive pressure it's under and that's a lot of the time what people don't really take into account when they talk about you know criticizing authoritarian regimes in the global south that are under attack from the u.s these things kind of have to retreat into themselves and uh and kind of like pull back on certain liberties just because you know there is a government trying to overthrow you and yeah but ultimately i think People talking about human rights in Cuba, if you don't immediately start talking about either the blockade or about the worst human rights violation on the island, which is unquestionably Guantanamo Bay, if you don't start talking about those things first, ultimately I really, I'm really, i really suspicious of where you're coming from and I don't think you're really being serious about human rights and it's really just a tool being used to bash a government you don't like. I I don't know if you've been there, Abby, but... um. I thought it was just like a prison camp. It's an entire town they've taken over. There's actually like a McDonald's and all sorts of like chain restaurants there that you can go to, and uh, you know there are job postings uh, for the McDonald's on Guantanamo Bay. So if you're if you're kind of a minimum wage person uh, listening to this, maybe you could apply there. That might be an interesting place to work.
1: Well, it's a huge, huge compound. It actually has like the best diving, basically in a, in a long span of area. It's like a really um, prime diving. Area where they encourage you know soldiers who are stationed there to, like bec- you know become scuba divers and all the shit. It's just like it's just a complete waste. Um, not only is it just horrific that there's still 20 people languishing without charges or trial who are just innocent rounded up, but like beyond the torture camps and gulags that's happening there, it is like just a pristine natural habitat that belongs to Cuba and it's just being completely insanely occupied illegally and it's a hu- it's fucking huge. It's huge. Oh yeah, there's gift shops. I have like a Getmo like mug, a Getmo bag. It's <laughs> really wild, man. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, multiple gift shops and tons of, like a st- basically strip malls.
2: That's great. Okay. Yeah. On yeah, go visit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good, good <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. How ridiculous is it, Ellen? That we we literally have a place where. It's known on record that we rectally force feed people at this basically a gulag, and we're sitting here acting like the Cuban government is so evil. And it's like, yeah, like you, you, we we have zero leg to stand on. I mean, even if I was just a PR consultant for the United States trying to figure out a way to sell this, I'd be like, dude, you guys need to like do something about Gitmo first. Yeah. If you want to take out Cuba, like you just need to like pretend like is not doesn't exist anymore. Because this is ridiculous that you're trying to fucking you know, act like Cuba is this corrupt. But then we have this other thing completely out of left field, Alan, you know, and I thought John Bolton's claims about Cuba's supposed bioweapons program was out of left field. But now we have this other thing that's been con- there's continuity from the Trump administration to the Biden administration's national security apparatus, basically claiming that American diplomats and RCIA people, starting in Cuba, were targeted with what the US government is now calling a microwave weapon. <laughs> what scientists decided might have been crickets a year ago, as now the narrative is, is not just we don't know how this is being done, which the US government was saying before. Now, the narrative is this is a microwave weapon being targeted at our diplomats, including now apparently CIA agents who live in the United States and their family members. The U.S. government is now saying over 100 people, including CIA agents' family members, have gotten some form of brain damage or side effects from being targeted by this. And, of course, Alan, as you know, this is being called the Havana syndrome. So what is your general take on this and what do you have to say about the fact that it's basically you know this all started in Cuba and they're giving it this name that is basically trying to remind you of Cuba or the Cold war? What are your
2: thoughts on all this? on Havana syndrome, it's amazing when you actually look at the uh symptoms of it, they line up perfectly with migraines, which is something that one in about one in about eight people will uh suffer in their lives, and yet this is being you know presented as some sort of microwave cannon that Uh, countries are attacking United States officials for some reason to minorly inconvenience them and give them a headache and sort of nausea. And it's also interesting that this is happening in pretty much every country that the United States doesn't like. So it's happening in Cuba, it's happening in Russia, it's happening in China. And that this is being taken seriously, even when, as you said, Robbie, A lot of scientists uh, weighed in on this when United States officials actually recorded the sound and posted it online. And immediately Cubans just came in and said, that is a Cuban cricket that uh, tweets at a certain time of year. Yeah, it's a really annoying sound, isn't it? This is not a microwave cannon or anything that we're firing at you. It just seems an utterly bizarre story from start to finish. It seems like uh, there would be no reason for this to be used. Why would these countries, particularly Cuba, go to such great lengths to use a heretofore uh, unknown science fiction weapon on a bunch of uh, US diplomats to minorly inconvenience them when there would be a hundred ways of doing this in a much easier way. I actually wrote an article about this for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting called A CIA Officer Has a Headache, Media Blame Russia, and it was about uh, (laughs) a guy, Mark Polymeropoulos, who was a CIA bureau chief in Moscow, and he talked to Julia Ioffe about this for GQ and talked about how he had uh, this terrible attack in the early hours of uh, December when he was in Moscow and he felt he was at death's door. But his story doesn't make any sense because then he says a few hours later that morning he got on a train to St. Petersburg and went uh, Christmas shopping and uh, went into a bunch of dive bars to have a good time and he was feeling much better afterwards. I mean, if you're at death's door and have been attacked by some sort of crazy science fiction weapon, you don't get on a train to another city and then traipse around St. Petersburg in the middle of a Russian winter to go window shopping. It's absolutely insane. Even uh, that article even lists uh, quotes from the CIA basically saying that Polymeropolis is totally making this up and that they're refusing to, they're refusing <laughs> to call this like uh, being injured in the field. So he's not getting any of the sort of compensation he could, be, uh, he could be subject to. So, I mean, even people at the top of the CIA are pouring cold water on this. And yet, because it's such a good story and because there's so much political utility to it, it, uh, it persists regardless.
1: Well, really quick comment is I don't put it past our government to be doing this kind of shit to its own people and blaming adversaries. I mean, who the hell knows? Because I know that there I mean, there's so many people who claim that they've had like permanent brain damage from this, too. It's really an out there story that I can't actually figure out what the hell is going on. But yeah, I mean, I I definitely do not believe that it's any sort of adversary doing it to people. Let's just say that. (laughs)
0: It is a very strange thing that they're trying to put out there because not only does it seem to, would stoke paranoia, but, you know, again, it almost seems like, like Alan said, it does seem like there's people from the CIA trying to pour cold water on this. But then there's other people coming out and saying that there's a hundred victims of this that have actual brain damage. And that just seems like a really ominous harbinger of like what's to come. Like why Mm -hmm. why would they be claiming something so ridiculous sounding? I mean- I, I can't remember the last time in this country where it's like, yeah, a foreign country, we don't know who is secretly attacking over 100 of our CIA agents or assets. I mean, that that could be turned into a pretty big deal. So it's it's worrisome to me, uh, Alan, yeah. regardless of how ridiculous it is. So I guess I would just encourage people to just pay attention to it, not saying to take it to 100% of
2: face value, but just like see where it's going to go because it's really odd. There are precedents for this. So for instance, in the early 80s, I don't know if you two know about this, but the yellow rain scandal, where um, people, uh, US uh, soldiers in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, were saying that there was this mysterious yellow dust covering them. And they were getting really sick about it, and uh, sick from it. And uh, they suspected that this was some sort of chemical attack. And this was front page news for weeks and weeks in the New York Times and the Washington post and on all the cable or on all the uh, news channels then and it was only later that they found out that it was the uh, the urine of some sort of bug that uh, was native to Southeast Asia and if they asked anybody from that country uh, where it was happening where it was you know Vietnam Laos or Cambodia people would have told them what it was but you know the story just rumbled on regardless because Either because uh, these people are way too paranoid, or because it served a political function. But ultimately, yeah, that was um, that was exposed as a complete brain fart or a complete, uh, you know, fake news scandal in the early '80s. But you know, it it, it served its purpose politically. Ultimately, and I, I, I'm worried that this, you know, crazy microwave cannon story is an, the new yellow rain for this era.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope that it turns out to be something as silly as bug piss and it's not an actual, <laughs> like, electronic weapon of some kind. Because, yeah, I mean, it's just coming off the heels of all these weird UFO leaks by the U.S. military. It's it's creeping me out. But just let's, let's uh, since we don't have too much time left and, and uh, we didn't get to this yet, I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to talk about a new article you wrote that you quoted me in, I'll just say. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was a long time coming, uh, type of article, you know, Nathan J. Robinson, I thought, took a big swing and a miss at a person we know as on jetty, who's become a very popular figure in alternative media. And I thought his miss, he swung at him and he missed because he was taking at face value, Nathan J. Robinson, this idea that on jetty was actually a genuine populist. And he was sort of saying that, well, these right populists, they're really just the same as fascists. So we shouldn't be aligned with these people and a lot of people you know including Glenn Greenwald, quite a lot of people pushed back on that and said this is a joke he's not a fascist whatever. you I think you're the first person to actually write a thorough article on who Sagar Anjedi is where well, you're not coming at it from that angle at all. you're questioning this idea of is he a populist and is he actually some kind of you know you don't say that you don't use this phrase but is he some kind of sheep dipped, person who comes from neocon think tank culture to be planted into alternative media. And I don't know, Alan, where to start on this, but your article is basically called Sagar Jetty, the pseudo-populist mainlining neocon ideas into progressive politics. There's so many different things we can mention about him, but you know, one of the most interesting things I think you said, and this is not just indicative of Anjeti, because there's a lot of other people like this now, who are doing this, but you say that Anjeti presents himself as an anti-war populist. The entire reason I am interested in politics is because of 9-11 and opposition to the Iraq war. It is my North star and always will be, Sagar Anjedi said. But this is difficult to square with the fact that he chose to study counterterrorism in Israel and to work for two of the most hawkish neoconservative think tanks in America, the very same think tanks whose principles laid the groundwork for the wars in Iraq in Afghanistan that Anjedi claims to so vociferously oppose. So why do you not think this is just someone who learned from their past mistakes, Alan, and is actually just doing good work in pushing back against war? You don't believe that Sagar Anjeti was really uh, inspired to do this kind of work because he was opposed to the war in Iraq?
2: No, um, I suppose. <laughs> no, uh, I've got a confession to make. I kind of liked uh, Breaking Points and um, Rising but I always had a problem uh, with the whole concept of this sort of like establishment uh, well critiquing the establishment is great but this sort of combination of right populism and left populism working together because ultimately right populism historically has basically been tantamount to fascism and I'm really not sure about how left populism and right populism can really work in the long term i'm not talking about just um you know somebody on the street or somebody your neighbor or something who maybe talks about you know being a conservative but is totally anti-war i think it's totally justified and necessary to work with those people but i'm talking about people in high positions of power in the republican party who suddenly talk about them being anti-war but seem to vote for all of these you know. Expansions to the military-industrial complex, more money for the Pentagon, etc. And I think Cigar is quite an interesting case in that sense because he presents himself, as you said, as this anti-war right-wing populist who is really a pro-working-class conservative. But if you look at his background, it really doesn't suggest that at all. I mean, first of all, he goes to elite universities like uh, George Washington uh, in uh, George Washington University in uh, Washington DC and then Georgetown. Both of these institutions are kind of well-known for their connections to the national security state. And then he personally chooses to go away and study counter-terrorism studies at IDC Herzliya, which is a university in Israel of all places, which is uh, really known for one thing, and that's churning out Mossad agents or IDF officers. Uh, so he goes from learning and Uh, studying security studies in a very spooky university in Washington, and of his own free volition goes to Israel and does that. That doesn't sound like somebody who's a really anti-war, anti-establishment guy. And then straight off off the bat from there, he goes to get a job at the Kagan family's um, think tank, the Institute for Study of War, which if you know anything about the Kagan family, you know that they are really the intellectual architects behind the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the surge in, uh, in Iraq as well. They have been the eyes and ears of uh, US government and the US military. People like um, General Petraeus has really leaned on the Kagans. And they've really been you know one of the the groups that have been charging the United States towards any war uh, that they see fit. Now, after that, he goes and works at the Hudson Institute, which is about as mainstream a conservative organization as you can potentially or possibly get in Washington, D.C. I mean, people at the Hudson Institute are people like uh, Mike Pompeo, the guy who started the Hudson Institute is actually the inspiration for the title character of Dr. Strangelove. In fact, he thought it was such a close representation to him that he actually tried to get uh, royalties from that film. So it's like the crazy genocidal guy at the heart of Dr. Strangelove who just wants to bomb the entire world. That's who the Hudson Institute was founded by. And so this really doesn't sound like somebody who's like this anti-war, you know, working-class conservative... Hudson is obviously funded by all the usual suspects, by all the uh, weapons companies like Raytheon or Northrop Grumman. And it's also funded by a bunch of uh, Asian governments, particularly Taiwan, Japan and South Korea. And for the last few years, Hudson has pumped out this constant drumbeat of just interminable anti-China propaganda, talking about how we need to confront China. And this is the absolute imperative for the 21st century. And Sigar talks about this on, uh, on Rising and now on Breaking Points as well, where he's always talking about how the needs to confront China and how progressives have to get on board with this. And at no point does he disclose that a lot of his quite substantial salary actually comes courtesy of the government of Taiwan, which is obviously totally against China and is trying to break away from the country. And that's a huge conflict of interest, which he doesn't disclose. And one of the main reasons why I really don't buy the idea that he is, you know, a sort of uh, pro-public populist is is the fact that he still works for, I mean, he doesn't actually work for the Hudson Institute, but he still has a lot of connections with them. He still does the podcast, uh, which uh, started... um, at the Hudson Institute, he still works with uh, Hudson Institute employees. And so ultimately, if he has had this great uh, come to Jesus moment, he hasn't talked about it and he's had a long time uh, to do so and he just still pumps out this uh, this uh, rhetoric which sounds pretty much interchangeable with neocons. Um, you know, there are a lot of right wing figures in uh, the United States who tries to sound populist you know, started to talk about criticising the elites. I mean, even Donald Trump did it with his drain the swamp rhetoric. People like General Michael Flynn have tried it as well. These people are just obviously transparently phonies. And people see it as such because obviously they have long histories in uh, Washington doing exactly the sort of thing they now claim to be against. But with Cigar, it's a bit different because he's much younger, he's much more presentable, and he's much better at what he does. And so he's had a lot more um, success convincing liberals and progressives that he's one of their allies, when in fact, I'm really not sure that's the case.
1: And even as recently as a couple months ago, I saw him speaking about the need for U.S. domination in the South China Sea, which is just absolutely flies in the face of any sort of actual real anti-war populism it's just absolutely perplexing that this facade has been kept up for so long and i like crystal ball um, but cigar just really seems to be a wolf in sheep's clothing especially since his twitter header photo was him and donald trump forever it's like okay so so you are actually legitimizing the notion that trump himself is a populist i mean it's just bizarre
2: yeah, I mean, it is incredible. Yeah, I think uh, I'm willing to give Crystal Ball a pass. I like her a lot as well. But um, ultimately, I think this combination of the idea, the whole point behind Rising is that the new right and the new left, the, they sort of, I don't want to call them the alt right and alt left, but certainly the anti establishment right and anti establishment left can work together on all sorts of issues and get things done. But ultimately, I think their core ideologies are so far from each other that this is not a marriage that's going to that's gonna last the distance.
0: Maybe people who may be listening to this be like, why are you fixating on Sagara and Jetty specifically? Well, why, why would the Hudson Institute, this think tank that is incredibly mainstream, extremely neocon, has Scooter Libby there, has Mike Pompeo there, why would they be producing a podcast that's all about this sort of populist realignment? What would be the purpose of that? And I guess one answer I have to that one speculative answer and I want your answer on this Alan as well is that it does seem like it's just another rebranding exercise by these DC policy pushers and war makers who realize that populism, you know, this Trump style of populism is now a vehicle for can be a vehicle for their propaganda as well. And why not use that propaganda lane? Why not use that lane of rhetoric to do that? Um, And it's just in the same way that Kagan and Crystal rebranded as being liberals during the Trump era. I see this just as a similar rebranding exercise. And I'm just wondering if you see that overall picture when you zoom in, zoom out from it, or if you see it differently than that.
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you listen to the realignment, which was at one point an official Hudson Institute publication, uh, their podcast, but is now more independent, I think it's associated with some weird group called the Lincoln Group or something. Um, yeah, he seems almost like a different person. As you said, um, Abby, there's a famous clip of him talking about how the United States need to, needs to be the world hegemon and like freedom for the rest of the world is only secured when the United States has total control over the entire sea, including the South China Sea. It just seems absolutely crazy that this sort of like uh, total world domination... Uh, fixation can be presented as some sort of like progressive idea. As I said, conservatives have been rebranding as kind of anti establishment for a long time. Ultimately, they can't sell themselves as what they are, which is representatives of the top 1%, of the billionaire class, of Wall Street, of uh, the big manufacturers, of uh, huge transnational corporations. Because nobody's actually going to vote for that you know you can't win an, an election with one percent of uh, the public voting for you. so you have to find certain bases and obviously the conservatives have found you know religious conservatives or um, uh, you know the gun nuts in America as certain uh, allies which they can work with to try to form some sort of a majority which with which they can govern. But another way of doing it is just kind of like casting off all your past uh, foibles and presenting yourself as some sort of outsider who doesn't have any power and is really challenging the establishment. It really is amazing how well this is working for some people, despite the fact some of these guys have got like long careers in Washington where you can look them up. And you know, It's not just conservatives doing this. Joe Biden is doing this to a certain extent as well, like trying to present himself as like an ally of black people and of women, whereas his voting record shows a completely different story. You know, he was one of the architects of the crime bill. He's, you know, been for the Iraq war, etc, etc, etc. He is not an ally to a lot of people, but he's managed to kind of present himself as such because people in America are so desperate for genuine populism that ultimately they're willing to believe anything.
1: And that's why we shouldn't take any politician um, across the political spectrum at face value when it comes to their rhetoric and not just politicians, of course, but anyone who comes cut from the cloth of these kind of think tanks that you're talking about. Um, I see that night has fallen for you, Alan. Uh, so we're going to let you go because I know that you it's quite late where you are. But thank you so much for such an engaging a critical conversation I do think that you are one of the most important voices out there as a media critic and I cannot encourage people to check out your work more Alan thank you so much for coming on Media Roots Radio
2: well thank you so much that's really nice to hear from you because I've respected your work for such a long time watched you listened to Media Roots watched uh, Breaking the Set and uh, The Empire Files so yeah it's great to uh, great to talk to you finally it's awesome to talk to you Alan thank you so much Thanks, Alan,
1: for coming on.
0: If you liked what you heard today on this episode of Media Roots Radio, please consider donating $5 a month or per creation at our Patreon at patreon.com slash media roots radio. This gives you access to one exclusive bonus episode per month. Thanks for listening. Take care.